0: you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: A good morning, friends. It's good to be back with you. I do bring you greetings from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. I thank God for the great privilege and the opportunity to be able to handle his word once more here at Sojourn Community Church. I thank God for my friendship with my beloved brother and your lead pastor here, Jamal. Uh, We've been friends now for quite some time. Uh, We met when he was a youth pastor at Forest Baptist Church well over a decade ago. And then coming into the senior pastor there, we continued in our friendship and mentoring relationship. When the Lord called him here to serve as lead pastor, I had the great joy of serving on the installation uh, team as well. And I'm just thankful for what the Lord is doing in this place and in this congregation because you are doing the hard work of pursuing one another intentionally in reconciliation. And reconciliation is not simply racial reconciliation. Reconciliation can look like socioeconomic reconciliation, familial reconciliation. They're all different ways that we need to be reconciled through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you are doing that hard work because it does take effort and it does take work. And so I'm thankful to be able to be with you uh, this morning. I also thank God for our sister who read uh, the word, and I want us to allow the Holy Spirit uh, to minister to us, even as I do my best and my due diligence to try to explain uh, this text. But I pray that the Spirit of Christ would use my feeble words and even my feeble intellect and that he and he alone would make this passage known in our hearts so that it might be applied. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you uh, so much for your mercy. God, we thank you for the great privilege of proclamation and for this opportunity to preach your word. Father, we pray, God, that you would take these few moments together uh, to strengthen your church and the faith and to transform our hearts uh, from the inside out. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach for you truly are the only teacher. Glorify the Son in Jesus' name. Amen, and thank God. Uh, The title of this message is simply The Hermeneutic of Love. The Hermeneutic of Love. Like one of your worship leaders who plays the guitar, uh, my brother and friend, Barry Jocelyn, I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. And one of my favorite courses at DTS was a course entitled Bible Study Methods. And Bible Study Methods was led by a man named Howard Hendricks and Mark Bailey, who's the current president when I took the course. And it simply is a course on an introduction to biblical hermeneutics. The word hermeneutic simply means interpretation. It is the ways in which we are to interpret God's word so that we can apply God's word. Well, in that course, we read a book entitled Living by the Book, and I, I'll never forget being exposed to diagnostic questions we should ask a text in order to grow in our understanding or interpretation. And they were who, what, when, why, and wherefore. Who are the people in the text or story? What event is taking place? When did the event take place? Where did did, did the event take place? And why did the event occur? And then wherefore simply ask, what difference does it make? We ask these questions each time we go to God's sacred word because our desire when we approach God's word is to apply God's word. One of the things that Prof, uh, most affectionately known as, uh, Prof would say to us that we abort the Bible study process when we fail to apply it. The Bible study method process is aborted if we do not take God's word and apply it to our lives because God's desire for you and God's desire for me is that we be changed, is that we be different. And see, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a well-worn story in the American church experience. We hear the title Good Samaritan, we automatically conclude or assume that we have this idea in the bag. No need to listen to this sermon or Bible study or attend a small group on the Good Samaritan. I I got this. But the reality is that each time I hear this parable, I am cut to the quick by the Spirit because I realize that I'm nothing like this Samaritan. I realize that God has a lot of work to do in my heart because I want to be like this Samaritan. And so as we approach this text, I pray that you are praying just like me each time that I read it, that God will give me new eyes to see so that this can be applied to my life. The overarching theme, I think, of this passage is simply that our interpretation must align with his revelation, that our interpretation of this passage must align so that our application, our lives, are transformed by his revelation. You see, when you look at verse 25, uh, the text opens up with an expert in the law asking Jesus a question. And he asks Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Now, this entire passage is about hermeneutics because he wants to know, what must I do to be saved? And he wants to know, how can I come into this understanding based upon the word of God? It's a hermeneutic question. How can I be saved? And when I look at this passage and, and and try to pick it apart, here's what I see, I think, in the text. You see, it begins first in verses 25 and 29. I see great confusion in this text. Then in verse 27, Jesus, after he asked the, the individual to, what does the law say and how do you understand it or interpret it? We see this religious leader give the great commandment, verse 27. And then in verses 30 through 35, there's a great conundrum. And lastly, Jesus responds with great counsel in verses 36 through 37. You see, Jesus takes time to answer the question concerning how a person inherits eternal life presented to him by this Jewish lawyer, but he does not answer him with contempt or with conceit. He answers this Jewish lawyer who understands and knows and studies the law with humility. You see, my principle from this as I listen to Jesus respond, I think that we should respond to our worst critic with humility. You see, one of the greatest difficulties that we oftentimes see and hear or experience on the social media networks of our day is not humility but hubris. And even the greatest critic deserves humility, right? Right? Even the person who says some of the most outlandish things in this day and age deserves a level of humility, even as we correct them in their statements. But oftentimes, we don't see that on Twitter or Facebook or whatever else. And so, but Jesus models for us as this expert is asking him a question, because this is an honest question. In the spirit of Francis Schaeffer, I think that honest questions deserve honest answers, do they not? Uh, We don't know what is lurking within the hearts of this man. We don't know what's behind the question. The only thing we can assume is that he really wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? He has rabbinic literature in his mind. He has the Mosaic law in his mind. All these things are working together. And now he sees the rabbi of rabbis, Jesus. And he says, man, tell me, how can a brother be saved? And Jesus responds with humility. Jesus responds how we should respond when people are confused. When people are confused, we point them to scripture. And not ourselves. Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And and luckily, this man actually responds with the right answer. How does he respond? He connects the uh, the uh, the Shema Deuteronomy six five, a portion of the Shema in verse five, with Leviticus nineteen eighteen. He says, after you know the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And then he goes to verse five and he says, and we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he connects Leviticus 19, 18, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great commandment. This summarizes the entire law, and it supports a vertical and a horizontal understanding of biblical salvation. That is to say that those who have a right relationship with God seek to have a right relationship with those who are created in the image of God. We are transformed from the inside out, beloved. And after he connects this, Jesus is teaching us something, that God transforms our loves when we respond to his love by the Spirit. We learn to love the right things in the right way. But the problem is we often love the wrong things in the wrong way. You see, we learn to use people and love things as opposed to loving people and using things. We promote a secular mindset when God is saying, I'm giving you the sacred word as a sacred trust so that you people of God can be different. We don't think nor do we act like the world and Jesus is confronting this religious leader and this religious elite because Jesus knows that he has been exposed to the law, but he really doesn't know the law. You See, right answers are not equal to right actions. We often can give the right answer, but, but I need to look at your feet. You need to look at my feet in order to see whether or not I believe the answer that I'm given by my behavior. You see, right answers should be wedded to right actions. If I say God says love him with my whole being and love my neighbor as yourself, I can't respond, well, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Because that might be exposing what I really believe. And this is the confusion that we see this religious leader in. Notice that he responds after he gives the right answer. And Jesus says, uh, you've said correctly. Now, do this and you will live. What does he mean by live? You will experience the fullness of joy. You will live differently. You will be transformed. You will experience joy, beloved. Do this and. You'll live. But he doesn't like Jesus' answer. No, he doesn't like it at all because he proves it in verse 29, and he responds wanting to justify himself. He asks Jesus a question. And who is my neighbor? (laughs) He's still confused. So instead of Jesus smacking him up, side of the head. Like back in the day on this show, I used to watch call in living color. Homie don't play that. Pop, homie don't play that. Ah, uh, see, I knew I wasn't by myself. Y'all saw it too. No, Jesus doesn't do that. No, Jesus responds and gives him a parable. And a parable, beloved, what he's doing is he's going to use a, a lesser principle in order to point to a greater principle. He's going to throw a lesser truth alongside a greater truth in order to point towards a kingdom principle. A parable is not just simply a heavenly story about an earthly reality. It is when you throw a lesser truth alongside a greater truth in order to point towards a kingdom principle. And that's what he's doing with this parable, beloved, the parable of this good Samaritan. And he starts, Jesus offers the parable of a man who would seemingly disqualify to this religious leader as a good neighbor. He answers the question, who is my neighbor? And he imagines this unknown man traveling a dangerous 17-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. This area, as you know, is extremely mountainous, and bandits were known to ambush travelers by hiding behind rocks. This particular traveler was beaten, stripped naked, and left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus creates this emotional tension when he utilizes two Jewish religious leaders who fail to render aid to the fallen victim. And he creates this tension so that this religious elite, this this student of the law now could see a Levite and a priest who are not going to do actually what the law was meant to do, which is to transform and to sustain life, to experience life and peace. And so Jesus exposes this this greater principle of the law and what the law was given for by saying in verse 33, but a Samaritan, (laughs) someone who in your opinion, religious leader would be outside of an exemplar of the story on living out principles of the law. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, why does he use a Samaritan? Because you know that the Jews and the Samaritans had mutual beef with one another. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans did not like the Jews. And it went way back. How far back? Way back. <laughs> And it goes a little something like this. Listen. It went way back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians overcame Israel. And that pain that they had in the past was still with them today so that the Jews and these Samaritans didn't feel like they could get along with one another. Pain from our past can have present effects in present pain in our present Pain in our past, rather, can produce present pain, killing relationships with one another. I know when we look at our past, we don't have any pain in America. <laughs> right? But the reality is that wherever there are two individuals together, two broken individuals living in the same space, occupying the same space, there will be pain and problems. Amen. Broken people have broken ideas, and broken people with broken ideals will try to break one another. But Jesus connects this and he says, listen, I I know you have a broken idea about the Samaritans, but I want to fix this so that you can see that this Samaritan is going to become the hero of my parable. Because right answers are not equal to right actions. You need to watch your feet in order to really understand your faith. So Jesus shows us that it takes effort, time, and energy and the proper use of our treasures in order to transform someone's brokenness. You see, in verse 34, it says about the Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. He presents a conundrum that this Samaritan is willing to do for this man with the Levite and the priest were unwilling to do. Because the Samaritan gets it. He knows that his treasure and his time does not belong to him. It belongs to another. And we would say it belongs to God. So he gives his own resources by putting the man on his donkey. By bringing him to an inn and taking care of him until the man was fully conscious and doesn't stop there. He looks at the innkeeper and takes out more money, two days wages, and says, when he comes to, I'll, I'll, I'll reimburse you. If there's anything else that he needs, when I return, just be responsible and faithful over this man. I will reimburse you for any debt that he has. Because this Samaritan gets it. He understands that he's different. See, one of my mentors reminded us after a brother had fallen into sin, a simple phrase he gave us, me and several others. He said, we are different. Men, Do you understand that, brothers? We are different men. And I would say to you, my friends, that we are different people, brothers and sisters. We do not respond like the world to those who are disenfranchised, dispossessed. Refugees, ostracized, or marginalized. We don't respond like the world. So, Jesus, after hearing this, he, in verses 36 and 37, gives great counsel. It goes from great confusion to the great commandment, and then we see this great conundrum, but he gives great counsel in verses 36 and 37. It says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who had fell into the hands of robbers? He yeah, asked a question. <laughs> the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus gives great counsel. He says, go and do likewise. You see, here's my final principle. We listen and heed Jesus' command to see, touch, and serve. Listen and heed Jesus' command to see, to touch, and to serve. I have the joy and the privilege of coaching basketball for the Christian Education Consortium alongside a varsity coach by the name of Jared Slaughter. One of the things that we tell our our players is that if you want to get a rebound, you got to think, crash the board. As soon as the ball is up, you're looking up. And then you find a man and you see him, you touch him, and then you box out. You box him out. Crash the boards, get a rebound. But if we're going to help people who have fallen, beloved, then we need to see, to touch, and be willing to serve. And the question that we have when we hear this text isn't whether or not we have the right answers, but do we have the right actions? Who do you see in Shelby Park that you need to touch and serve? Where is the closest elementary school or high school in this area where you need to see, touch, and serve as a mentor and a friend to a mom or a father who needs help? How would they see the local church touching them and serving them so that they can see the reality that the best hermeneutic is the hermeneutic of love and it's the hermeneutic of our lives? Because it might be a well-worn statement that the only Bibles that some might read is the Bible of your life. But don't make that statement trite. Let it convict you. Let it convict me. That if they want to see the love of Christ, they're going to look at us, beloved. So we got to see them. We got to touch them, and we must serve them. You see, as I closed this, 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 this sermon, I, I had to write a contemporary parable myself. And the parable goes like this. It said, Jesus had a conversation with a White House official who asked him, who is my neighbor? Jesus responded, an Anglo-American politician left Capitol Hill on his way to his downtown condo. He walked several blocks before being attacked by a group of thugs who beat him within an inch of his life, leaving him in a pool of blood. Shortly thereafter, an African-American politician from Capitol Hill saw the man lying there helpless. He immediately walked to the other side of the street, pulled out his smartphone and tweeted, we need stronger laws on crime. Next, a Caucasian minister saw the body in the street and immediately moved to the other side, entered the nearest coffee shop to write a blog article on the need to trust God in all circumstances. (laughs) Lastly, A young man who recently arrived in the United States from Haiti saw the helpless man, cleaned the blood off of his forehead, placed him on his shoulders, carrying him to the nearest hotel, used his meager funds to provide shelter and aid to the victim until he fully recovered. He left this man in the faithful hands of a Nigerian innkeeper and his Arabic wife and said to them, Take care of him. And if there's anything left to pay, I will pay it. Jesus asked the political official, who was the neighbor? There was no response. Beloved, we're different people. And when we hear words that contradict his words, with grace and humility, we speak the truth in love. Because one day, beloved, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in this body. Every word that proceeds from our lips will be held accountable. And we are different people. We understand that our neighbor is anyone who is in need. And so let the neighbor be you rather than worrying if someone else is a neighbor. Take personal responsibility for being a neighbor because like a good neighbor, beloved, loving Christians are there. This is the hermeneutic of love, let your life be interpreted thusly.